Well, there was a husband and wife that had long dreamed of being able to go to the Holy Land. And as they finally were making their plans and getting ready to, to go and make those final arrangements, uh, well, his cranky mother-in-law insisted that she join them. And so they ended up going, all three of them, they go to the Holy Land, and, and while they're in the Holy Land, let there be light, and, and while they're in the Holy Land, the mother-in-law passes away. And their guide that wasn't with them when she passed quickly found out and he went to be with them and tried to console them and said, I, I have a friend who's an undertaker. Let, let's go find out what, what we can do. And so he takes them to this undertaker and the undertaker just expresses his sympathy and his sorrow and, and he lets them know, well, really you have two options. And your two options are that for $350, we can bury her here or it's gonna be about $6,000 and we can make arrangements and we can fly her back home. And really, the, it's gonna be up to you of what you want to do. And, and the husband, without even looking to console or to be able to ask what his wife thinks, and he just looks right at the undertaker and he says, um, we'll, we'll fly her back home. Now, his wife was really touched that she would be willing to spend the bigger amount for his mother-in-law. And, and so the, the undertaker says, oh, okay, well, we, we, we can do that. I, could, can, you, can you help me understand, understand why? Because is it, is it because you really want her to be close to home and have a graveside close to home and it can be easier to visit and all that? And the husband said, no, no, that's, that's not it at all. And the undertaker was really surprised. And he's like, well, can you tell me, tell me why it is that you're going to fly her back home? And he says, well... It's about 2,000 years ago, there was a man that died here, and he was buried. And three days later, he rose from the dead. <laughs> and I'm not willing to take that chance with my mother-in-law. <laughs> well, there's not an Easter joke that I don't know what is, so... <clears throat> Well, happy Easter. Really are glad that you guys are here. and We are here to celebrate Easter and the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. Listen, one of the things I really appreciate about Crosspoint is I appreciate the diversity. There's just so much diversity here as a church. And I'm not talking about just racial diversity. That's certainly one of them. That's not all I'm talking about. That we just have all sorts of diversity here. That when we have people that come in, we've got people that are happy and we got people that are just living on hard times. That we just get just a, just a mix of what's going on. We, we, we've got some people that, that for them, they're going, hey, you know, I, I feel like I found my stride in life and there's people that, that come walking in and they just kind of seem like I'm just floundering. I really just don't know what, what I need to be doing. We've got people that, that come in and they're just excited and on fire with their relationship with Jesus. And, and we've got people that come in and they're like going, I'm just not even sure what I believe about Jesus. We have so much diversity here. But there is one thing that we all have in common. And what we all have in common, it comes down to love. And when it comes to love, what do we have in common? We have these two things about love in common. We all long to love. We all, we all long to, to find people that, that we can just genuinely love and, and pour into. And, and we all long to be loved, to be receiving love. That These are the things that you and I, every single one of us, we have in common. And today, we're gonna talk about love reigns. And we're going to talk about the, the love that Jesus has for us and, and how his love reigns. And, and that for you and I, for us to really discover that and know that and know what that means and, and what we should be doing with it. That when you read through the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four books in our New Testament, they start out our New Testament, these books are about the life and times of Jesus. And if you were to read through all of them, that you would find that there are 89 chapters. 
that, that make up Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then if you were to read about the first 30 years of Jesus' life, that, that you would find that only four of those chapters cover the first 30 years of Jesus' life. And that if, if you were to read it all, you would also discover that there are 85 chapters that, that cover the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. That, that think about that, that, that the majority of our gospels, they cover the last three and a half years of Jesus' life. But then there's one more surprising thing, and that is this, that the very last week of Jesus' life makes up 29 of those chapters. That, that a third about what was written covers the very last week of Jesus' life on earth. And that week is referred to as the Passion Week. The, the Passion Week. And so we're gonna just kind of take just a, a quick snapshot and, and look at this and see what this week looks like. And so we start with this first Sunday, Palm Sunday, this triumphal entry. And on this triumphal entry, this is where Jesus, he actually gets on the, the colt of, of a donkey and, and he rides it. It's never been ridden before. It's never been trained, but, but Jesus gets on it and rides it. And there are people that they're, they're worshiping him with, with palms. They're, they're bowing down. They're, they're throwing their garments down. And, and, and it's just this incredible act of worship. It's, it's the first time that he's ever been just publicly worshiped and praised like this. And, and while this is happening, you have the religious leaders that they're watching this and seeing all of this and they were against Jesus. They couldn't understand that he really was the son of God. They were against him and they told him, Jesus, you need to get your people in check. You need to shut this down because they didn't think that Jesus was the son of God, the savior of the world and they wanted him to shut it down. And what we see is we see that on that first Sunday, it is the triumphal entry. And then we see on Monday, we have the clearing of the temple. And the clearing of the temple, this was where Jesus was observing what was happening as people were in that inner courtyard going into the temple and that there were people that were profiting off of what was happening. And there were people that they were coming along and they were selling doves so that people could go and make a sacrifice and, and they were upcharging it or they were exchanging currency and, and it just really bothered Jesus to the point where he went there and started turning tables over, took a cord and started driving people out like a whip and, and he, he just started trying to get them out. It was this clearing of the temple that he really wanted the temple to be recognized as a holy place and that it should be sacred. And then we have on Tuesday, we have the teaching on the Mount of Olives. The teaching on the Mount of Olives, and, and for this teaching on the Mount of Olives, Jesus had already, even before this week, Jesus had said that he was going to be dying. And he said that, that not only am I gonna die and die at the hands of the religious leaders and the elders, that, but three days later, I'm going to come back to life. That he had covered this before with them. But at this time, what we see Jesus doing as he's teaching on the Mount of Olives is he's, he's letting them know that I'm going to come again, that, 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 that I will actually return a second time. And so his disciples are asking him, well, well how are we going to know, how are we going to be prepared for that, of, of that happening? What, what's going to be a sign of, of you coming again? So Jesus started sharing with them some of the signs. He said that, that there will be worldwide hunger that will end up taking place, that, that people's love will grow cold for one another, 
that the nation will, will fight against nation, that, that people who believe that they will be hated. And he begins to share with them these very things while he is there teaching on the Mount of Olives. And then we get to Wednesday. And Wednesday, he's resting in Bethany. That everything leading up to the cross this week, this was his only day of, of truly just resting. And, and, and here he is, he's, he's resting on this day. It's actually on this day that he says for the fourth recorded time that we know of, that this fourth time that he's let people know, I'm, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. And it was at this time, while he's resting in Bethany, that somebody took some very expensive perfume and, and, and she poured it over Jesus' head, anointed him this way. There's, there's two times in scripture when we read about this. One time is where his feet are being anointed, and this is a different time. And, and, and his head's being anointed this time. And somebody speaks up and says, that, that perfume's really expensive. And, and, and we should have saved that. We could have sold it, and, and we could have helped give it and provided for the poor. And Jesus said, you will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. And so this woman is doing the right thing. And this was Jesus resting in Bethany. And then we have on Thursday, the last supper, the last supper. And the last supper, this is the, the last supper that Jesus would eat before he would return to his heavenly father because it was a returning to because he left heaven and came to earth. And it's at this last supper that he ends up telling his disciples that are all gathered, these 12 disciples, he ends up telling them that one of you is going to betray me. But he also covers with, with, G, with, with Peter that, that he's going to end up being tempted and to watch out. One thing he, he didn't share at this particular time that he probably could have is he could have looked at a couple of them and said, um, and some of you guys are gonna get a book deal and it's gonna be the best selling book ever because they certainly did write and contribute to that. And he covered the, most of those things at the, the Last Supper. And then on Friday was the crucifixion. And this is where Jesus gives his life. So Jesus at any moment, he could have stopped this, but he didn't because he knew it was the purpose for which he came, was to give his life for us. And, and I could tell you and it's a pretty accurate detail of all the excruciating pain that Jesus went through and what that looked like and, and what that could have even felt like. But I'm not going to. Instead, I want to actually tell you what I believe was the most painful thing that Jesus went through on that cross. And the most painful thing that he went through wasn't the physical pain. The most painful thing that Jesus went through was experiencing sin. He had lived a perfect life up till here. And he still didn't do anything wrong, but he came to take on the sin of the world, to, to pay the price of sin, to offer forgiveness. And it was when he took on the sin of the world, it was the most painful part of everything that Jesus came to do. It's even at this point when Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first time in all of his eternal existence that he ever felt separated from the heavenly father. It was crucifixion.
Friday, the day that he gave his life. And on Saturday was Jesus in the grave. The disciples were confused. The disciples still couldn't understand what what had happened. The disciples were concerned about their own life and their own safety. What what was going to happen to them? Are their lives in danger? Are they going to try to do the same to them as what they have done to Jesus? As Jesus was in the grave. And then Sunday came. And we get to see that Jesus rose from the dead. It was resurrection day. It was resurrection Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead. That is what we call Passion Week. But I want to get started with something that Jesus did and Jesus covered before this Passion Week even started. It's going to be in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus has, is sitting around with his disciples and he, and he asks them, hey, what, what, what's the word on the street? What, what, what is it that people are saying? Who is it that people are saying that I am? And so he, he's asking this to his disciples and his disciples are starting to name some of these spiritual heroes of the past. And then Jesus turns and says, okay, but who do you say that I am? And with this, Simon Peter, one of the 12, he, he says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ. You're, you're the one that we've been waiting for. You're the fulfillment of the prophecy. You are the one. And Jesus said, you are right, but you don't know this on your own. You know this because the Heavenly Father has revealed this to you. And it's the very first time that, that Jesus lets it be known And his disciples truly do discover just who Jesus is. And in Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That Christianity has a monopoly. And the monopoly that Christianity has is, is, is Jesus. He's the only one out of any religion you could ever look at. And interestingly, because every religion wants a piece of Jesus. But, but Jesus, in Christianity, when we look at this, he is the only deity, the only one that claims to be deity, that has said, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. This is how I'm going to die. And I'm going to come back to life three days later. And he did it, and he fulfilled it, and he came back to earth and he stayed here for 40 days. Jesus predicted his own death, his own burial, his own resurrection. And and as he was predicting this, I think his disciples had a really hard time believing that he was meaning this literally and not just figuratively. That they, they, They just couldn't grasp that this was literally going to happen. In fact, after Jesus had risen from the dead and he had started to appear to to a few Thomas, who hadn't yet seen him, one of these disciples, said, I, I'm not going to believe it until I touch the scars in his hands and I feel the hole in his side from that spear. I'm not going to believe that he has risen from the dead until. His own disciples weren't believing this until they saw it. When we get to John chapter 12, 
We'll start in verse 20. Now, were there some, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Now what's interesting about this is, is mainly it was the Hebrew people that were worshiping God. But here were these Greeks and these Greeks were going, hey, we, we, we want to worship God too. Yahweh God. And so there, there's these Greeks that they're coming to the festival to worship and they came to Philip. Philip was one of the disciples who was from Bethesda in Galilee and with a request, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Well, Philip went to tell Andrew, which was another disciple, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus, hey, there's these Greeks that are here and they're asking to see you. Verse 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now, when Jesus says hour here, he's talking about this this appointed time. He's not talking about a specific 60 minutes, but he's talking about the the appointed time that that what Jesus is identifying here is the dominoes are starting to fall. For, for, for the very reason I came, the time is now for me to be glorified, for me to fulfill what I came to, to, to do. Verse 24, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And if you could allow me to paraphrase what Jesus is saying here, is he saying, in order for something new to begin, something old has to end. That, that Jesus knows that I, I have to give my life so that many lives can be born again. That, that, that I've got to do this. That this is why I came. And, and see, for something old to, 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 to end, if something new to begin, for something old has to end, we all know this. We've all experienced this. Whether it has to do with, hey, making some healthy choices and something old has to end. Whether it's about some relational choices and what we're gonna do, something in order for something new to be, something old has to end. And Jesus certainly knew this when it came to us being able to benefit for all of eternity, that he would have to give his life, that something else, in order for something else to live, something else would have to die. Verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it. And while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That, 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 that if we just go, hey, I, I just love my life and I'm gonna make life all about me, then this life's the best you're ever gonna get. But when you look at this life here on earth and, and you compare it to eternity, that this life is a life that's to be hated because this is the worst it's ever going to get. It's only going to get better. Jesus said, whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant will also be and my father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus didn't say, my father will honor the one who believes in me. What he said was, my, my father's gonna honor the one who serves me. Maybe you're somebody going, I've never felt honored by God. Then I would just ask you, how are you doing when it comes to serving him? Because it's those who serve him. Those are the ones that he will honor. And then Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. That we get to see the struggle 
of Jesus knowing what he's got to face and what he's got to endure and this struggle going on. But he knows what he came to do. He says, no, don't, don't save me from this. But instead, Father, you be glorified. And that's what he says. Father, glorify your name. You know, most people that believe there's a God want to please God. But the breakdown happens when people don't take the time to read God's word that we don't get to know what it takes to please him. And we can't just settle for a, a snippet here and a snippet there to really try to understand who God is. And, and I think for many that don't ever take the time to actually read the Bible, that, that for them, that they kind of come to their own conclusions about what the Bible is and, and what's even in it, that they see people, people that don't take the time to read it, that they look at the Bible and they go, oh, that's, that's just a, a book of morality. That, that's, that's what that's there for. And, and so they just look at it and identify it. They think it's just a book that emphasizes behavior modification. But the Bible is so much more than this. But if you really don't take the time to read it, then it's so easy to just assume that, that the Bible is something that's this, it's this self-help book. And in this self-help book, that we just see this catalog of rules that we're just supposed to follow. And yet it is so much more. That when you take the time to read, even just through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this gospel account, even when you take time just to read through this, the gospel is less of a you do and more of a what Jesus did. There's so much more of an emphasis about what God has done for us than of, a, than of an emphasis of what it is of how we need to live every aspect and detail of our life. The average American home, not even talking about Christianity here, just an American home, no matter what the belief, the average American home has three copies of the Bible in it. It's when there is a Christian home that it jumps to nine copies of the Bible. But it really doesn't matter how many copies of the Bible we have. What matters is, are we taking the time to read it? Are we taking the time to discover a God who loves us? Because when we take the time to read through it, we'll end up seeing and discovering this. But, but as long as we are not reading through our Bible, we will remain having a spiritual deficit, the spiritual maturity deficit. And I think that we just might be in the most spiritually deficit time when it comes to our maturity than any time since Jesus has walked this earth. That it's going to take us getting into God's word in order for us to become mature in our belief about who God is and seeing what can we be doing to show him our gratitude for what he has done? When we read through the Bible, the Bible reveals some things that are so important for us. That the Bible reveals God's character. That, that, that we can't discover his character by just seeing a few verses. We've got to take it in its totality of discovering who God is, what his character, what his nature is. That, that when we read through the Bible, the Bible reveals God's assigned purpose to us. 
when we read through the Bible, we'll begin to discover who we are. When we read through the Bible, we will discover our greatest need. And what is that? What is our greatest need? Our greatest need is to be restored back to our Heavenly Father. Our greatest need is to be forgiven because it's the forgiveness that restores us. It's why Jesus lived a perfect life. It was a sacrifice for us. If he wasn't perfect, he couldn't have been our sacrifice. And he was a sacrifice for us. And he put an end to all sacrifices because he came back to life, which makes him a living sacrifice. And it's what changed and broke the cycle of just constantly sacrificing an animal for our sins, for our wrongs. So that we could have a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. And the Bible is not just a collection of these historical stories. But if we'll take the time to read through and discover some of these historical stories, we'll see that the historical stories are there because it's revealing God's redemptive work of God restoring people back to him. And we all worship something. We, we, we all give our affection, our energy, our heart. Our, we all give it to something. And when it comes to worship, we, whatever we worship becomes our obsession. That we just become obsessed with it. We just can't get enough of it. That whatever we worship, it becomes our obsession. And whatever becomes our obsession that we, we imitate. Whatever it is we, we become obsessed with, we, we begin to imitate that. We, we begin to follow that. And, and that could be true of, of somebody that's a, a social media influencer and going, hey, I'm going to imitate and follow that. That's what I'm obsessed with. It could be somebody that is a, hey, a star, whether that has to do with what we watch on television or on the movie screen, or whether that's somebody that's an athlete and, and that we just go, hey, I, I'm just, I, I worship them and, and how great they are and what they can do. And I'm, I'm now obsessed with them. And, and now I am, I'm, I'm imitating them. And, and whatever we imitate, we become. That, that, that when we imitate, we, we just start to become that. And so we, we need to be really strategic about what it is that we're going to choose to worship and take an inventory of what's getting our time, what's getting our affection, what, what's getting our energy, what, what's getting our money, that, that we need to take an inventory and go, what is it that I am worshiping? And if you're somebody that, that your heart you've given it to Jesus. Then you need to take an inventory and go, am I worshiping him in a way that's really honoring him? The Jack Hayford said, worship changes the worshiper into the image of the one worshiped. And the greatest image that you and I could be changed into is to become more and more of the likeness of Christ. That is where we're going to find the real significance in life that Jesus died to give us. Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment? That there was over 600 written commands and, and they're just cutting to the chase. Can, can you tell us what the most important commandment is? So in Mark chapter 12, he, he records this. We'll start in verse 29. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's united. Verse 30 is where he answers it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. That, that's everything to you. There, there's nothing left of you. And that that's what we should be. That is the greatest commandment. And that love 
that we need to love God and, and, and God is actively looking for those who love him. He's actively looking for, for those people that where Jesus' love reigns, that they've received that love and they are reciprocating that back. The, the, the Greek word for, for worship, our New Testament's written in Greek, and the Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And then this word, it means worship, it means to, to bow. This word, it means to serve, but it also means to, to kiss the hand. It's, it's this idea of, of expressing this affection, that worship is our expression to what we value most. That, that, that what is it, who is it that we value most? And, and we value with our love, we, we, we love with what we value. And love is never limited to what you feel on the inside. That love is only love when it is expressed on the outside. Do you know who I think does this better than anybody? Expressing love. Dogs. Dogs. They, they, they worship literally this, this proskuneo, this kissing the hand that, that, that your dog, whatever your hand gets on their level, they, they're just kissing it. And, and, and they love it. I, we, we've got some friends that, that have, a, have a dog. Um, it's a little morky. You know, Cheryl and I have always had big dogs, you know, 60 pounds or greater. So it's a little challenging to think of this as a dog. But, but, but anyways, we'll, we'll recognize it. And, and so they've, they've got a little Morky and they named their Morky Mindy. Some of you are old enough to get that. And, and so they did, they, they, they named their dog Mindy because it's a TV show, Mork and Mindy, that, that some of us know about. And, and so, but, but I want to tell you, it, they, they live in the Houston area. Whenever, whenever we drive and we go there, as soon as we shut our door in the driveway, Mindy's at the door just circling because somebody's there. And, and, and when we walk up to the door, that you could hear her, I'm, I'm sure Brett and Lori would say that's barking, I would say yapping, you know? But, but, but you could hear her. And, and, and they, they go and they, they open the door and, 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 and Mindy, she, she just cannot express her affection to you enough. She comes up and she gets on her hind legs and she starts scratching your leg and then she sits on her bottom and she's shaking her tail and she can't contain herself. She's back up and she's scratching again and she just can't contain herself as in she literally can't contain herself. In fact, there are times if we've been away too long that, that Brett and Lori will put a diaper on her before we show up, a doggy diaper because she can't contain herself because she's so excited and so expressional. When, when we sit down, she can't wait to get on our level, licking our face, licking our hand. It just, she just cannot get enough. Any cat people out there? Yeah, a few of you guys are willing to admit it. You don't get this from a cat. You, you, you walk in the door and the cat's like, oh, it's just you. And they go back to licking to create another fur ball they can go cough up, you know? I, I, don't, I don't get it, cat people. Anyways. Dogs do such an incredible job at expressing love. They just really do. They, 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 they are so expressive in their affection. And I think you and I could learn something from them in the way that we would express our love to our Heavenly Father. That, that, that we would get so excited in a way that, that we can't contain ourselves and the, and the way that we would worship Him, the way that we would be praying with Him, the way that we would be serving Him. That, that Jesus' love reigns, but... 
but are you really letting that love reign in your life? And are you reciprocating the love that Jesus has given to you? Because Jesus expressed his love for us in leaving heaven and coming to earth. He expressed his love for us in the way that he would begin to heal people, even raise others from the dead. To give him an opportunity so that he could teach people about the love of our Heavenly Father. And he could, he could strip away all, all, the, all the religious junk that had gotten in the way of people being able to really understand God. That Jesus loved us so much that he gave his life for us. And that he overcame death. And when you know that you're loved by another, you have a choice to make. And your choice is, am I going to accept this love? Or am I going to reject this love? Do, 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 I, do I not want anything to do with this love? And do I just want to move on and go on with my life? Or, or do I, I want this love? Do I want to receive this love? And, and when we choose to receive the love of another, that when we receive it, they know it because we reciprocate love back. That we give them our heart. We give them our affection. We give them our energy. We give them our time that they, they see that they are a priority in our life and that that is love being shown. The psalmist wrote in Psalm chapter 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his acts of power and praise him for his surpassing greatness. And he finished this psalm with let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, it was Palm Sunday. This triumphal entry. And that this triumphal entry, as Jesus was being worshipped, the religious leaders told Jesus, shut it down. Shut it down. Don't let them worship you. And I want you to see what Jesus' response was. We find this in Luke chapter 19, verse 40. And Jesus said to them, I tell you that if these do not speak, the very stones would call out. See, Jesus was the active agent in all creation. And he created all there was, all there is. And, and humanity is his most prized creation. And humanity is what he longs to be worshipped by. And he's going to get worshipped one way or the other. And he told those religious ones, if they don't speak out and worship me, then these stones that I've created that don't even have breath in them, they're going to praise me because one way or another, I'm going to be worshipped. We all have a choice to make. Are we going to worship our Heavenly Father? Are we going to worship Jesus, our Savior? We all have this choice that we have to make. Are, are we going to accept this love that He has given to us? And if we accept it, then we reciprocate and we love Him back. Pray with me.
Heavenly Father, you have done far more to show your love for us than we ever, ever could deserve. In sending your son. And Jesus, you faithfully completed the assignment, our need, to pay that ransom price, to pay the penalty for our sin. And I pray that we would really be able to have eyes and hearts that can see that you came because you love us. You came to redeem us. I pray that we would be receiving of that love and that we would reciprocate it, that we would love you back and that we would look forward to spend an eternity with you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.